Amen. What glorious hope we see in that passage of our life in Christ, the one man who came and made right every wrong. He bore our sins so that we could have eternal life in his name. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, I know you're thinking about the Christmas season and text that we might consider in light of Christmas, and Hebrews chapter 2 was probably not necessarily on your radar, but we're going to spend this week in Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 18, and next Sunday we'll come to Isaiah chapter 9, but over these two weeks as we're kind of at the home stretch of the Christmas season, we want to turn our attention to the incarnate Christ. So Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18, and the title The sermon really is exactly what I just stated, considering the incarnate Christ. We want to consider the results of Christ taking on human flesh. In all of Scripture, I think the book of Hebrews may give us the um, most glorious and comprehensive consideration of the person and work and ministry of Christ. Uh, With each section of Hebrews, it's just like we build layer upon layer, upon layer of who Jesus was, how he comes to us, what he did, how he now intercedes for us. It's just a glorious, glorious picture. In Hebrews, we see this clear picture of the threefold office of Christ. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And it's in some of those descriptions that we get these real clear glimpses as to the depth and the meaning of the incarnation. What did it really mean that Jesus took upon flesh? And so, Lord willing, this look in Hebrews chapter 2 will be helpful, it will be encouraging, and I pray that it will exhort us and spur us onward as we strive to consider the glorious good news of the gospel, the glorious good news of the incarnation of the God-man. So let's look to our text. Hebrews 2, we'll read verses 14 through 18, if you will. And if you're able, please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's Word. It's holy. It is inerrant. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it is sufficient for all of life and godliness. Scripture says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is the Lord's word. May he write it upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Would you join me and let's bow together and go before the Lord in prayer. 
Father, we come and we desire to give you all honor and glory and praise. For you and you alone are worthy. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You're the author, creator, and sustainer of all things, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Lord, being so glorious and majestic, we ask the question, what is man that you consider us? Why is it, Lord, that you would take interest in a people to save a people, to call a people out, to redeem a people from a steep, heinous price of sin? Lord, we know the ultimate answer is that you did that for your own glory. All of creation, all that you accomplish, is for the singular and great purpose of glorifying your worthy name. So Lord, it's with that in mind that we come now to your word. Lord, I desire and I ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would make your truth plain and clear to us. Lord, I pray that we would come with hungry and eager souls ready to receive nourishment from the truth. Pray that we would have eyes that see and ears that hear. Pray that we would be humble and receive the instruction and admonition and encouragement of your word. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Lord, I ask by the powerful working of your spirit that you would provide all the help we need today. And Lord, our need is great. Left to our own strength and our own devices, we are weak and frail, sinners, We would be hard to the truth. But because you've made us alive together with Christ, I pray that your spirit would move powerfully in us to conform us to the image of your beloved Son. Pray that if there are any among us today who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, pray that the glory of the work of Calvary would be on display today and that you would open those darkened eyes and dead hearts to the good news of the gospel of Christ, granting faith and repentance, resulting in salvation. Lord, would you accomplish all that you desire and intend to accomplish among us, your people, today? Pray that all that we do, all that we say, the way that we hear the truth even, I pray that it would all be to glorify your great name. May every aspect of our lives be given to the glory of you, the great God, the only one who is worthy. Thank you for the access that we have to you through Christ. Thank you that we are washed in his blood, made clean by his sacrifice, counted righteous because his righteousness is credited to our account. Pray all these things in Christ's 
name. Amen. So again, considering the incarnate Christ, that's really what we want to do in the Christmas season. Consider the implications of Christ coming in the flesh. And the Reformation Study Bible frames this passage well to help us kind of see and be launched into our study today. It said that Christ is presented first in this text as our Redeemer and a warrior who defeats our oppressor and sets us free. And then he's shown as our merciful high priest who helps us in our trials. As you consider Christ as a redeemer and a warrior who does indeed set us free from the power and the condemnation of Satan, your mind probably immediately goes, if you know anything about the power of our opponent, your mind, when you think of Christ defeating that opponent, your mind goes to his deity. The fact that he had all the strength of God in him at all times. He's eternally God from eternity past. For no mere man could take on the power and the weight and the condemnation of sin. No mere man could go and battle against the gates of hell and the strength and the power of Satan and come out victorious. No mere man could die, then raise himself to life, and then ascend back to heaven where he ever eternally lives to intercede on our behalf before the throne of the Most High God. No man, no mere man could do that. And so when we think about this text and think about what it tells us Christ accomplished, surely our minds go to his deity. But what does the text say? Where does it point us as we consider Christ? It points us to his humanity. He had to be made like his brethren. He partook of the same flesh and blood. He was made like his brethren in all things. And he was tempted in what he suffered, so he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is all about the humanity of Christ and how he accomplished salvation while he was a man. We must remember he was God and man together at the same time, truly God and yet truly man. The basis of both of these presentations of Christ as Redeemer and Warrior and Christ as our great high priest all hinge on the incarnation. This whole text hinges on Christmas. In Hebrews 3... The author of Hebrews goes on to say that we should consider Jesus. We are partakers of a holy, heavenly calling, and we ought to consider the faithfulness of the one who came and kept and did all that his Father commanded. This, beloved, is our aim today, that we consider Jesus. But let's take that general idea and apply it specifically to the text, give you kind of a thesis, a purpose for our time together today. And that is, we are to consider Jesus, your faithful and merciful great high priest, and in considering him, we are to walk in the victory that he gives us over Satan and temptation. Consider Jesus, your merciful, faithful, great high priest. As you consider him, walk in the victory that he has won and that he has given you over Satan and temptation. 
Now, as we come to this text, there's probably uh, a couple ways, at least, that we could break it down. Often, we just go from the first verse to the last and maybe set some headings to, to kind of be waypoints as we work from the beginning to the end of a text. But I don't want to do that today because I want to preach two sermons in one, and we're going to go through the text twice with two headings. We're going to consider the humanity of Christ, and then we're going to consider his powerful priesthood. So again, we'll pick up points all the way through the text from 14 to 18 under both of those headings. So firstly, the humble humanity of Christ. Christ's humble humanity. Begin at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ's humble humanity, he partook of flesh and blood. Now, when you read this verse, if you're re- reading to, to learn and to study, probably you perk up at this statement, therefore, since the children, the children, who are the children? We're picking up in the middle in the second chapter of this book towards the end, so there's got to be some context. Who are the children? Backing up to verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews said that Jesus brought many sons to glory, said that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified belong to one father. That's the children, the ones that he sanctifies. We belong to one father. In verses 12 and 13, there's a couple Old Testament quotations, and, and there the saints are described as Christ's brethren. We're the children that God has given to Jesus. So we are his brothers. We, the saints, are the children referenced in verse 14. And to consider the humility of Christ in his humanity really begins at this point. And with this fact that the one who created all things was willing to humble himself to take on the form of that which he had created, that which he had constructed, that which was totally under Jesus' authority as the one existing in eternity past as the Son of God, he took on that very form. Jesus humbled himself, hear this, to the point of making those whom he created to be his joint heirs. There is a glorious inheritance that is coming to Christ for his earthly work. He is the heir of all things. And we, the children, those who are children of God's covenant promise to his son, we share in the blessings of Christ. And that is only because of his ultimate humility. Think about Jesus as our shepherd, as our priest, as our leader. Leadership in any aspect of life begins with this deep, selfless humility. It's being willing to take on the lowest task, the lowest rank, the lowest position, the lowest duty. That is what Christ did. He brought himself under everything. Because he had to be made like his brethren so he could become our good and faithful high priest. How did Christ make us? 
his brethren? Well, the text tells us. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Now, let's put on our, our Greek grammar, our Greek dictionary hat, and understand what's going on here, because you read that and you think, okay, he, he's sharing in our flesh and blood, but really that's not at all what the text says. We, the children, share in flesh and blood. Share is the Greek word koinoneo. It signifies having a share or a participation in something. It's the word koinonia is the noun form, and it's used of the church of our gathering, of our fellowship, of our communion. So the children of God, those who are adopted as his children by the work of Christ, we have a participating share in flesh and blood. But do you realize that's not a positive thing because flesh and blood is limiting here. We are bound by the limitations of our humanness. We are bound by sin, because we and Adam all fell. Now notice, what does it say about Jesus? Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Partook is a different Greek word, and it signifies a different action in that language. It's the word mateko. Thayer's Dictionary says that it can mean to belong to another tribe or to be from another tribe. So this is clarifying regarding Christ's incarnation. He didn't share in our flesh and blood. His nature was different than our flesh and blood. So he had to take on something that was alien to himself. He was not bound by the limitations of flesh and blood and humanness took on to himself a nature completely different than his own. He came and joined another tribe. MacArthur said of this, that partook means to take hold of something that is not related to one's own kind. He said, Jesus was not by nature flesh and blood. Jesus, when he's the, the eternal son of God. But he took upon himself that nature for the sake of providing redemption for mankind. Completely different, completely separate, completely other. And yet he partook, he humbled himself to take on flesh. This is the ultimate display of humility. He took on a human nature that he himself had created. The limitations of our flesh when compared to the deity, the divinity, the power of God are vast. But the greatest limitation that our flesh lays upon us is the limitation of death. It's the debt that all men pay. We're limited in knowledge. We're limited in strength. We're limited in, in many ways so far below the Lord. But the greatest limitation in all of our lives is that one day you will physically die. Jesus partook of flesh, so that to the express end that he could die. He died as the redeeming sacrifice for his people. So we're talking about some applications of humility. Do you understand then that humility doesn't just take on 
any task. It does. Humility takes on the lowest position, the lowest duty, the lowest task, but it doesn't stop there. Humility is willing to make any and every sacrifice. There is no sacrifice too great for the one who takes on the humility of Christ. And that's where humility then becomes personal and relational. Because it's not just that you're willing to kind of suffer through some hardship and be in a lower position. But it's that you are willing to give up your very life because you count others as more important than yourself. You're willing to give up the comforts of life. You're willing to suffer hardship because you want to love one another and consider a brother or sister, a friend, another saint as being more important than yourself. You are having the attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, as Paul would say in Philippians 2. So that's the first aspect of Jesus' humble humanity. He submitted himself to partaking of our flesh and blood, so that he could die, so that he could go to the cross. Moving on to verse 16, the writer says, For assuredly he does not give help to the angels, but he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. Again, you guys know that I am not a Greek scholar, but I can go look up words in a Greek dictionary. I can look at the footnotes in my Bible, and and I can tell you that this idea of of helping, he did not give help to the angels, but he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. Really what that means is he laid hold of. That's what that term actually means. Help is laying hold of. It's used in this context then of taking on a nature. He didn't lay hold of the nature of the angels. But he laid hold of the nature of the seed of Abraham. That is a human form that he took upon himself. Think about that nature then that he took on. A few verses earlier in Hebrews 2 verse 7, we found a quotation of Psalm 8 5. Psalm 8 5 talks about mankind and it says, Yet you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the angels. That is our position. Compared to the angels, we are made lower than the angels. And Jesus didn't lay hold of the angels' position. He took hold of, he gives help to us, the seed of Abraham. Consider, friends, that there were angels who were fallen. Christ could have been sent on on this rescue mission to redeem the fallen angels. Doing so, he could have taken on the nature of angels, and it would have been, in some way, less of a humiliation than taking on the form of man. Now, anything less than deity, of course, is infinite humility for Christ. But Scripture tells us that the angels, in a way, rank above humans. And so Jesus could have taken on that form and went to redeem angels, but he didn't. He lays hold of the human flesh, the human, the human nature that comes to us through Abraham. Calvin writes here very pointedly, very convictingly, I would add. He said that Jesus preferred us to angels was not owing to our excellency. It wasn't because there was something good in us, but Calvin said it owed to our misery our great need. 
to the fact that we are completely helpless, completely unable to rescue ourselves. He, didn't, he did not rather come to us than the angels because we were higher than the angels, but because he was going to infinitely humble himself to glorify his Father. Relational humility, Christ-like relational humility, is realizing that there is then nothing, no step too low. There's nowhere too far to go to help, to serve, or to encourage another, to encourage a fellow saint. There's nothing too far for you to do, to go, when you're trying to obey Scripture's command to take one another's burdens and bear one another's burdens. You can't do it like Christ did, but Scripture calls us to bear one another's burdens, and there is no step too low for you to take if you are to follow the model of Christ. This relation to the seed and the descendant of Abraham shows the fullness of of Jesus's humanity. He didn't take on some middle ground or middle form as some heresies through the ages ha- have depicted. No, he came as the seed of a woman, the seed and the descendant of Abraham. He was always and will always be truly, fully God, but he also took on a true, full human nature. Moving forward, verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The humility of Christ in his humanity. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Had to. That, that idea signifies actually a moral obligation. It could could have been used for a debt that had to be paid. Now, Jesus had no obligations to become like us, except that he was obligated in agreement with the Father and the Holy Spirit that he would redeem mankind. So he had to. He was obligated to take on human flesh so that he could redeem a people. The end of the verse shows us the ultimate necessity of this statement. He had to be like his brethren in all things so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. We read Romans 5 earlier. Romans 5, 12 through 21. We we saw this picture of Adam and Jesus. All in Adam become condemned. All in Adam are fallen. All in Adam inherit a sin nature. Christ had to then take on flesh so that through the one man, the one, the Greek says, anthropos, so that is the fullness of manhood, through one anthropos, the man, Jesus Christ. Through him, all can be redeemed. And notice the full extent. He had to be made like his brethren. He was obligated to be made like his brethren in all things. Not in some things. Not in most things. He was not called just to face some temptation and to maybe be physically tired and kind of be able to relate to our struggles. He was made like his brethren in all things. Every human frailty. Sickness, 
fatigue, hunger, temptation, the need of sleep, the need to practice self-control, the need to walk by the Spirit, to not give in to the, the temptations and the solicitations of Satan to sin. He had to be like his brethren in all things. He knew the weight of a weary heart. He knew the difficulty of heavy, physically exhausted eyes. He knew every frailty that you and I experience. And remember, as Paul again outlines in Philippians 2, he had equality with God. He was eternally there, and yet he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to and held tightly to, but rather he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the humility of Jesus' humanity. The last picture of Christ's humanity is humble humanity that we see is in verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered... He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Perhaps you think of Hebrews 4.15 when you hear that, that he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We have to understand what tempted means there. We talked about this in our men's group, um, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago in the chapter on Christ's temptations. And I think it was Will that reminded us that if you look at the word tempted in the Greek, that may not really be the best translation. It's a testing. It's a proving. It's not a temptation like we experience where you may actually have a sinful desire to go participate in sin. Christ had no sinful desires, but Satan surely did solicit Jesus to sin. He came and he tried to convince Jesus that whatever he, Satan, could offer would be better than walking in perfect righteousness but Christ obviously never gave in. MacArthur wrote of this, that Jesus felt the full force of temptation. He said, we often yield to temptation before we feel its full force, but Jesus resisted temptation even when the greatest enticement for yielding had become evident. So when we think about Jesus' humanity, think about quantifying the humiliation of the incarnation, which is maybe a difficult thing to do, but nevertheless, you think about quantifying the humiliation of Christ in the incarnation, what could rank higher than the devil coming to God of very God, seeking to solicit and, and the Son of God to sin, seeking to defile that which is perfectly, eternally righteous. Satan came to try to stain and mar and defile the purest of all eternity. This is the greatest of Christ's humiliations. But dear friends, let's realize that this is something that we face in battle as well. Satan, even once we are in Christ, especially once we are in Christ, he seeks to defile us. 
He seeks to entice us into sin. He seeks to solicit, to draw us out of righteous living and cause us to mar our reputation, to mar, if we could, the glory of God by defiling it with sin. Dear friends, we must resist. We must stand firm. We must imitate the model shown to us by Christ, the humble Savior. So Christ humbled humanity, just to recap. He partook of flesh and blood. He was of Abraham's seed. He was made like his brethren in all things, in every weakness. And he even faced some type of temptation, the solicitation of Satan to walk into sin. The ultimate humility. The ultimate show of how we ought to die to self. The ultimate show of how far we ought to prostrate ourselves below the Lord. Dear friends, be like Christ. Secondly, I want to consider Christ's powerful priesthood. Christ's powerful priesthood. So this is, I guess, the the second part of the sermon. Go back to verse 14 again. Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ's powerful priesthood is first noted in how he rendered powerless Satan who had and holds the power of death. Christ's humanity was a rescue mission. He took on flesh so that he could redeem us because we were powerless. We were enslaved to Satan. We were dead in our sin. Had no power, no thought, no desire to be made alive in Christ. Yet he, our warrior king, took upon himself our weak flesh and he utterly, utterly defeated sin. He utterly defeated the power of death, and he showed this power over sin and death when he died on a cross, and then on the third day rose from the dead. The greatest power of all eternity. Jesus took on flesh and blood, as we saw earlier, so that he would see death. But he saw death so that he might render powerless the one who had the power over death, who is Satan, who he has defeated, and who one day he will cast into the darkest corner of hell for the rest of eternity. In first, or 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, Paul says that Christ abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Dear friends, what glorious good news that is. It's not miss the fullness of this. He abolished death and rendered Satan powerless. He did that so that Satan could never again take hold of a child of God. That should call us to action. That should serve as an exhortation to see that this one who enslaved us to sin is now rendered powerless. He frees us, the text says, from fear of death as we were subject to slavery all of our lives. Matthew Henry 
The old Puritan wrote that Satan may be said to have the power of death. He draws men into sin, into the ways of sin, which are death, and he is often permitted to terrify the consciences of men with the fear of death. But, Henry concludes, but now Christ has so far destroyed him who had the power of death that he can keep none under the power of spiritual death. What's the importance of the flesh and blood of Jesus? Because that's the context that he partook of flesh and blood, just like the children who are his joint heirs share in flesh and blood. The importance is that it was the flesh and blood that he partook of, that he took upon himself, that allowed him to render powerless Satan. In his life and death and resurrection, Christ frees us from enslavement to sin. He frees us by giving us new life, by putting within us a new heart, by sending his Holy Spirit as our helper who will lead and guide us into all truth. To apply that maybe a little more specifically, dear friends, do we understand that nominal, disinterested Christian living effectively displays that Christ must have been powerless in this work that he strived to accomplish. Because if he frees us from Satan, if he had the power to free us from Satan, our lives would be transformed. Nominal Christian living, if there even is such a thing, nominal Christian living shows that we serve a powerless Savior. Spirit-filled, holy, righteous Christian living, walking in the freedom that we have from sin, displays the power of Christ and glorifies God. Dear friend, don't be one who takes away from the glory of Christ because you are lazy in sanctification. What ought to be a specific response to this? For uh, 2 Timothy, I keep saying 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul writes there, that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You don't have a spirit of fear or of timidity, but one of power and love and discipline. Don't cower away from suffering. Stand firm. Be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Look to your glorious Savior and know what he suffered. Look to the disciples and the apostles and the saints that have gone before and realize that they suffered ultimately in this life for the gospel. And you stand firm in like way for Christ proclaiming the good news and living in such a way that proclaims that good news. Do not fear Satan. Do not fear the great enemy, but you be ready to march upon the gates of hell. John Knox is quoted to have said that a man with God is always in the majority. Man with God is always in the majority. We're certainly not the majority in this world today as saints. But with God on our side, we are always the victors. We will always conquer 
we will always overcome ultimately and eternally, and Lord willing, perhaps even in this life. Wage war against the devil. Be a courageous warrior for Christ. Go to battle on his behalf for his glory in the power of his spirit. Continue on, verse 17. Before he had to be made like his brethren in all things. We're talking about the powerful priesthood of Christ. He's made like us in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the office of Christ and what he does in this great priestly office. He is our high priest, and he offers, rather, he offered once and for all the redeeming sacrifice for our sins. Perhaps you're familiar with the role of the Old Testament um, high priest. He would go into the Holy of Holies once each year, and he would make an atoning sacrifice for all the people of God. Jesus is now our great high priest. He was made like us in all things, so not only does he just become a high priest like those who already existed, but that he would learn compassion and mercy, that he would feel our weaknesses. He would have sorrow for and patience with us and pity upon our weaknesses because he experienced them, because he knows them. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. Hebrews 5 verse 2 says that the high priests were to deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Dear friends, Christ fulfills that role perfectly. And you, my beloved friends, I too with you are ignorant. We are misguided. We battle sin and flesh and temptation, and yet Christ deals gently and patiently with us because he was like us in all things, because he knows our weaknesses. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. Don't miss the fact. He's not just merciful. Praise the Lord that he is merciful. But he's also faithful. He's also trustworthy. You can also give the deposit of your life to him and know that he will keep it. You don't go and live your life serving and giving of all your strength for Christ only to go to that final day and realize that he couldn't keep you. Rather, if you are truly in him, He will guard the good deposit of your faith and of your life. Though we are not Christ, we can't accomplish the same thing that Christ did, certainly. We ought to take upon the same merciful and faithful mindset toward one another. We ought to be compassionate friends, mentors, disciplers, parents. We ought to understand the temptations and the struggles 
and the difficulties of our fellow man. Because, dear friend, you are in the flesh, and if you say that you've never struggled with temptation, all you're doing is lying. So you have experienced the temptation to sin. You ought to be faithful and patient and merciful toward one another. But in Christ's priesthood, let's not miss this ultimate step, this ultimate work at the end of verse 17. He was made like us in all things so that he might make propitiation for the sins of his people. He might appease the wrath of God towards you and your sin. Again, think back to the high priest of the Old Testament. Year after year after year after year, every year he went into the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice, to atone for the sins of the people. What did Christ do? Hebrews 10, 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he doesn't go back in and offer it time and time and year after year. But Hebrews 10, 12 says, he sat down at the right hand of God. Dear friend, that is your high priest. That is the propitiation that he made for your sins. It satisfied God's wrath toward you and your sinful nature for all eternity. And then he sits down and he intercedes on your behalf, declaring his blood and his righteousness on your account forever and ever. Amen. The work is done. The sacrifice is complete. And the great high priest is seated in the heavenlies, making intercession for us. Where does that leave us? Verse 18 is a great and glorious conclusion to give us an exhortation to send us out. For since he himself was tempted in that which we, he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. comes to our aid in our time of greatest weakness. Think about the path here. Eternally God takes on flesh. He goes to the cross. He bears your sins. He dies. He's laid in the grave. He's raised on the third day. He goes back to heaven. He intercedes on your behalf. And oh, by the way, he said that he will send his helper who will lead you and guide you into all the truth, and who will provide you a way of escape in your hour of need. The greatest present outworking, the greatest present outworking of Christ's priesthood is that he helps you in your time of temptation. He holds you He keeps you, but you don't see the fruition of all of that until you get to eternity. But dear friend, when you are tempted to sin, when all the pleasures of the world are before your eyes, and you would love and long to go and participate, and your flesh is just craving that sin, the greatest outworking of Christ's priesthood today is that he provides you a way of escape. He's given the Spirit to be your helper. He draws near to you so that you might have clean hands and a pure heart. 
Think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. He said, No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. He said, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. It's not that you have the strength, though, dear friend. It's because he will help. Also, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So that you will stand firm. When the enemy's arrows are flying, you have the grace of God, the Holy Spirit living within you to cause you to stand firm. I want to draw out one exhortation here. And if you've not heard any of the exhortations today, this is the one that I would encourage you to listen to and to take away. This is why we, the church, must take personal holiness so seriously. Because this is the outworking today of Christ's priestly work. If you are not growing and advancing in holiness, you're not resisting sin, you are not resisting temptation, but Scripture tells us that he was tempted, and since he was tempted, he's able to come to your aid when you are tempted. This is why holiness matters, because it is the outworking of a transformed life and a new, regenerate heart. Christ helps us he makes us walk in holiness. If you are his, the temptation that he suffered, the solicitation to sin that he endured, all the power that he had, the power of the Spirit working in him is available to you. So you, dear friend, stand firm and walk in newness of life. This great deliverance to be delivered from death and captivity and sin and temptation. It's all made possible, dear friend, by the incarnation, by the humanity of Christ. That was God's design. God could have done whatever he wills. He has infinite wisdom and all of creation belongs to him. But he chose to redeem us by sending his son in the form of of a man so that he could bear our curse. So as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the birth of this great Savior, this great high priest. His birth was the first visible step of his redeeming work. So we have another eight days before we celebrate Christmas Day. As we march forward, as we joyfully look to that day when we're able to celebrate and remember and proclaim and enjoy the blessings of this life, dear friend, fix your eyes upon this work of Christ. We do celebrate that he came as a baby, but we don't celebrate the baby in and of himself. We celebrate the Savior. We celebrate the fact that he took on flesh so that he could fulfill God's law on our behalf. So that he could bear your curse in his body on the tree. 
so that you could come in faith and repentance, believing in him and his work, and turning your life from sin to faith and righteousness by his grace. He came to die. He died only that he might live again. He died and lives again so that you may live with him for all eternity. Consider, dear friends, the incarnate Christ. Consider him and let's give him the glory and the honor that's due his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its truth. I pray that you would, by your grace and through your spirit, that you would write the truth upon our hearts. Lord, give us a longing to be like Christ. Give us a great desire to walk in the way which he walked. Give us a desire to have victory over sin. Grant us the grace to be humble. Lord, how I pray that you would defeat pride in each of us. How I pray that you would defeat selfishness in each of us. How I pray, Lord, that we would consider the incarnate Christ, and that we would glory in him and his finished work. Lord, fill our hearts with joy as we know that we are joint heirs with our Savior. We'll one day rule and reign with him. We'll one day be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And as that is our hope, may we purify ourselves just as he is pure. Lord, conform our lives to the image and the glory of your beloved Son by the powerful working of your Spirit. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.